the transfiguration. If you are just joining us, we have been in a series for almost a year now on the gospel of Mark, and we have reached a turning point. In Mark chapter 8, Peter confesses that Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God. He is the Messiah. And then Jesus starts to explain more of what that means. That the son of man must suffer many things, must be crucified, and on the third day rise again. But the, the disciples, they, they don't see it. And then Jesus says that if, if the disciples want to be with him in their glory, they must take up their cross and they must follow him as well. That's what we looked at last week. And then Jesus starts talking about how he will come at the end of chapter eight. He will come in the fullness of the glory of his father. And then in Mark chapter nine, verse one, he says that some even standing there will not taste death until they see this glory. And then we get the transfiguration. Well, let me pray for us as we consider it. We would be so bold, O Lord, as to pray with Moses, show us your glory. Glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. And in beholding the very radiance of your glory in the face of Jesus Christ, By the power of the Spirit, may we be changed from one degree of glory into glory into glory into glory. Remove the scales from our eyes and help us to see. Because we need this vision. For Christ's sake. Amen. Well, here's where we're going today. Here's how we're going to take this text. We're going to look at the revelation of glory. We're going to look at the weight of glory. And then we're going to look at the hope of glory. The revelation of glory, the weight of glory, and the hope of glory. So first, the revelation of glory. I need to set the scene for you. Jesus takes his three closest disciples, Peter, James, and John, and they go up high on top of a mountain, verse 2. There is a radiant light, a, a light that is otherworldly. Moses and Elijah are there speaking with Jesus. A cloud comes and surrounds them. And the disciples, they are terrified, verse 6. Terrified. Why are they so afraid? Well, usually things that we have not experienced before, that we don't have categories for, terrify us. But that's not quite the reason why they are terrified. They're not terrified because they were unfamiliar with the scene. They're terrified, actually, because they were very familiar with the scene. We read of it earlier. A mountain, a cloud, a voice. See, this is Sinai. 
And at Sinai, what we have is God coming and giving his people a revelation of his glory. The manifest presence of God in a cloud. And it's not just Moses who experienced that. Elijah as well experienced it later on. He, when he met God on top of Mount Sinai and he was taken away. God's glory. Uh, to, the word glory just means to be weighty, substantial. It's first used of Jacob in the Bible to talk about his wealth and his substance. Uh, but when we talk about the glory of God, we're talking about his weightiness, his substantial presence, which manifests itself in unapproachable light. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth, the seraphim say, is full of his glory. Calvin, the reformer, French reformer, said that that the earth is a theater, the universe is a theater, to the glory of God. That everywhere we see and everywhere we look is filled with the glory of God. Or as uh, Calvin said, wherever you cast your eyes, there is no spot in the universe wherein you cannot discern at least some sparks of his glory. Or as Gerald Manley Hopkins said, the world is charged with the grandeur of God. And then one of my favorite phrases, like shook foil. The world is charged with the grandeur of God. And not just places like Yosemite in Niagara. But in the everyday experiences that we see all around. The earth is full of his glory. But if that's the case, why don't we see it? Well, Calvin said, because we have put on blinders. And Paul said, because we have been blinded by the God of this age. You see, we are like, like people walking around this theater who have taken blindfolds and put them on ourselves so that we cannot discern the glory of God. We are blind like the disciples are blind. See, remember the context. In the book of Mark, there are two healings of blind men. One in chapter 8 and one in chapter 10. And throughout this chapter 8 through chapter 10 is when Jesus reveals that he is the son of God who must suffer many things, must die, be crucified, rise again on the third day. And the disciples, they just can't believe it and they just don't get it. And what we find is that these blind men and the healings of the blind men, they aren't just miracles, they're parables. Parables of the blindness of the disciples, because as soon as Jesus says that, Peter says, no way, you're never going to die like that. It's not going to happen because you're the Messiah. At which point Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. You see, the disciples, they're in the presence of glory. But they can't see it. And they don't understand it. As many of you know, some of you know, one of my favorite um, authors is Marilyn Robinson. And uh, when her book Home came out, the reviews on it were not very good. Uh, people who read Home, uh, many of the reviewers said, this is the most boring, pedantic book I have ever experienced in my whole life. 
I mean, it just drones on and on and on and on with these unfinished conversations. And Jack and Glory, these two uh, siblings who come back to uh, they come back home to watch their father die. And as they come back home, they kind of him and haw around these conversations on and on and on and on. And the reviewer said, I was bored to tears and not just like one reviewer, like many reviewers. Uh, here's what one person wrote glory's endless second, third and fourth guessing of her every last least thought and action to say nothing of her propensity to te- for tears grows exasperating. And anyone who thinks Jack is interesting hasn't spent enough time in bars toward the end of the novel. Glory wonders why anyone would stay in Gilead. It's a good question because If all the households are as claustrophobic as the Boughton Mance, then the other inhabitants are gripped by a kind of psychic paralysis that prevails there. Then Gilead could well be the most boring place on earth. Gilead is the town in which they live. Uh, uh, What the reviewer was saying was like, you know, this place is utterly boring and ordinary. But here's the thing. Those reviewers were completely blind to Marilyn Robinson's overall project. And her project is to show the beauty, the weight, the substance in the ordinary interactions of everyday life. Because you see, Marilyn Robinson is someone who, by her own admission, has been hugely influenced by John Calvin. And she carries with her the conviction that the earth is full of the glory of God and not just places like Yosemite and not just places like uh, like, uh, Niagara Falls, but in places like in the hymn and the hall and the awe shucks and the awe well of glory and Jack Bodden circling around old wounds And trying to gain intimacy with one another and with their father. In other words, she believes in a sacredness in the ordinary, in the silences and in the super subtleties of human interactions. That there are depths to these micro movements that reveal a sacredness to human life. Or. As one minister in the book who takes center stage in another book, Gilead writes, wherever you turn your eyes, the world can shine like transfiguration. You don't have to bring a thing to it, except a little willingness to see says the Reverend John Ames. Only who could have the courage to see it. Theologians talk about a provenient grace that precedes grace itself and allows us to accept it. I think there must also be a provenient courage that allows us to be brave. That is to acknowledge that there is more beauty than our eyes can bear. That precious things have been put into our hands and to do nothing to honor them is to do great harm. What is the Reverend John Ames saying? Well, he's saying what Anthony Dwar is trying to say in his latest novel. 
that there is a lot of light that we cannot see. And that the world is chock full of the glory of God. But you see, we live in a world that since the Enlightenment for 200 years has gone on a demystifying program and project. Or as Charles Taylor puts it, we uh, we live in a world that has been um, sucked uh, dry or sapped of magic and mystery and wonder. Or as Peter Berger puts it, we live in a world without windows. That is, we want to live in a world that's opaque, where what we see around us and the naturalistic materialism that we see all around us, that is it. And that's all that exists. But here's the problem. As much as we try to create a world and to understand the world in those terms, we just can't do it. The more secular we get, the more zombie movies get popular. You ever notice that? There's a reason for that. Because we know that there is more to life than what meets the eye. Paul Kalanithi, the neuroscientist, talks about how he went on this this project to try to make, to frame the world simply in naturalistic, materialistic terms. He writes, although I'd been raised in a devout Christian family where prayer and scripture readings were a nightly ritual, I, like most scientific types, came to believe in the possibility of a material conception of reality, an ultimately scientific worldview that would grant a complete metaphysic. I spent a good chunk of my 20s trying to build a frame for such an endeavor. Now listen to this. The problem, however, eventually became evident. To make science the arbiter of metaphysics is to banish not only God from the world, but also love, hate, meaning, purpose, a world that is self-evidently not the world in which we live. What Paul Kalanithi is saying is, I tried to make a world and make sense of a world simply on naturalistic, materialistic terms, a world without windows. And guess what? That world is not the world we live in. That we live in a world where there are layers and layers and layers of meaning and there is depth. You know, lots of people are on this kind of new quest for meaning and human meaning and relationships. And there's a whole studies that are uh, uh, in, in research fields that are going on about like happiness projects and other things. And, um, and it's interesting, one of the writers, Emily Estefani Smith, in her book, The Power of Meaning, she talks about how, how people need meaning to live. And then she talks about these pillars of meaning. And you know what one of the pillars are? As she's done like scientific research and, and sorting out who, who believes they have lived meaningful lives. She says that one of the key pillars is this, an understanding of transcendence. We need a world with windows. We need a world where there is a world behind the world. And what the disciples are introduced to this day through the transfiguration is that world. Because Jesus says, note, some of you will not taste death until you see the kingdom coming in power. Chapter nine, verse one. See what they are being, what they are being, um, what their eyes are being open to is what's there before them all along. But they just can't see because of their blindness. And for a moment, they are healed and they see. And um, 
in the Olympics, there was this really uh, kind of moving um, advertisement. Maybe you saw it by Samsung. It made me want to try it, trade in my iPhone, so it was pretty good. And um, and it's this it's of this person that's in uh, physical recovery and rehab. And they're in rehab, and they're sitting there, and they're trying to use prosthetic limbs and things like that to walk and, and, and such. And they're trying to get by, and they're struggling, and they're struggling. And then you see this picture of a person, like, legs running on a beach, right? And then it shows it's the same person in rehab, but they've got a Samsung phone, like, attached their goggles to them. And what they're basically getting a picture of is this is what it would be like if I was fully healed, And that's what allows them to keep going. What the disciples are getting here is a picture of what it would be like, what the world would look like if their eyes were fully healed. If they could see what is really there. What the disciples are getting a picture of and realizing is what Western culture is starting to realize, but most cultures never forgot. That there are many layers, dimensions to the world in which we live. And sometimes, sometimes they break through. On us, And so what does that mean for us? Well, I think as John Ames says, if this is the case, we have to acknowledge that there's more beauty than our eyes can bear. That precious things have been put into our hands and that to do nothing to honor them is a great harm. In other words, I think one of the things, the implications of the transfiguration is that it is confirming that the world is full of the glory of God. And we have to be attentive to it. But here's the problem. We live in a world, and we live life, where we're not very attentive. We scroll through news feeds. We go from one thing to the next. And here's the thing about the Internet. It is great for information. It is really bad for reflection. And it does not develop in us the habits of attentiveness. I was talking with uh, someone this week who was saying that they discovered the importance of silence and solitude and reflection. And he, he looked at me and he said, if I don't have 10 to 40 minutes in the morning where I just sit there in silence and solitude... Before God, sometimes just staring at a point on the wall, I'm scared. And I looked at him and he and he was dead serious. He goes, it scares me to think about it because I got so thin rushing from one thing to the next in life. And I looked at him and I said, yeah, we get thin, don't we? So we get thin. We live in a world where we are becoming thin and hollow because all we see is the surface of things. And we are unattentive to the fact that there are depths to this world. There are depths to human interactions and to all the ordinary places in which we live and move and travel. See, some of you are floating through life. And you're moving so fast that you're never even asking the question, what's it all for? What's it all about? Is there even meaning and purpose? Some of you have stopped to ask that question and you've come up short on answers. And you're depressed and you feel hopeless and you feel purposeless. I want to tell you what transfiguration means for you. It means that your life matters. 
it means that this world is anchored to a substance deeper and a reality deeper than any of us can ever imagine. It means that your suffering matters and that there is a sacredness to it because you are image of God. You see, Jesus here, he actually pins this whole section to his suffering. He's just talked about his suffering, and then he's going to pick it up again in verses 9 through 13, where he talks about his suffering and death with this whole scene about Elijah. And he says, yes, Elijah has come in the form of John the Baptist, and he heralded my coming, and now I'm here. But guess what they did to John the Baptist? They killed him, and that's going to happen to me as well. And that is not incompatible with my glory, because my glory that you saw, it remains with me even in the suffering, though you can't see it. You see, Jesus' suffering is the revelation of his glory, but we are blind to it. It, That's why Philippians 2, it should be translated not although he was in the very nature of God, he did not consider equality with God something to be exploited for its own advantage, but it should be translated because, because he was in very nature God, because here is the glory of God, that God, though high and lifted up beyond all our thoughts and imaginations, he bows low for you and for me and for others. He is the self-giving God who gives himself. This is the glory of God. Will we have the courage to see it? And it does take courage because note that Peter and the disciples, they are terrified by it. But why? Why would having a world of meaning be so terrifying? That brings us to the second point, the weight of glory. Uh, the disciples are terrified in verse six because because they know Sinai and they know their Bibles and they know what happens in that Exodus story and they know how the Exodus and how the people of Israel are warned. If anyone even gets close to the mountain and touches the mountain, they will die. And, and they know how when Moses goes up on the mountain and asks God, "Will you show me your glory?" How God says to him, you cannot see my face, for no one can see my face and live. You you see, they realize that. And they realize that because of that, whenever the glory of God is manifest, there always needs to be something to shield it a bit. It's why there is a temple And a veil in the temple. It's why there is a tabernacle and a veil in the tabernacle. And it's why Peter makes this claim. He says, verse 5, let's make three tents. One for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. Why? Because you are reflecting the glory of God and we need to shield ourselves from that. It's a little too strong. It's like going to look at the eclipse without the special glasses. Right? We, We need a barrier here. So let's create a barrier because we are going to die. I mean, think about it. This is an observant Jew bathed in the radiant light, the radiant light that all his life has told him that if you're bathed in it, you will die. And that's why here's the thing about here's the thing about Greek. You need to know something about Greek. I I don't give many Greek lessons and sermons, but this is an important one. Here's the Greek lesson that you need to know. In Greek, there was no punctuation, which means it's really hard to read. 
And it means that all the punctuation you have to infer, right? So it's kind of odd, verse 5, when Peter says, Rabbi, it's good that we are here, considering that he's terrified. I don't think he's saying it sounded like that. I think what Peter is saying sounded more like this. Uh, Rabbi, is it good that we are here? Let's make some tabernacles. This is a little too much. You see, because uh, Peter understood something that we don't, that we have a complex relationship with glory and with the glory of God. There's a high-pitched beeping. I'm going to acknowledge that right now. (laughs) It's usually the alarm over there, but we don't know what it is right now. Sorry. Uh, If you want to turn off all the sound, I can yell if that turns it off but uh we have a complex relationship with glory it's 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 what theologians call the mysterium tremendum the mysterious the tremendous mystery and there was a a guy named uh, otto rudolph and he wrote this book called uh the idea of the holy and in it he talks about how the idea of the holy it does something to us when we're face to face with the holy 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 god and that is that it, it both repels us and um, and attracts us. It's like going to the Grand Canyon. I've never been to the Grand Canyon, but whenever I get close to an, a ledge, two things happen to me simultaneously. It's the weirdest feeling. On the one hand, I feel like I need to back away. On the other hand, I kind of want to jump out into it. Now, am I just weird and on my own, or have you experienced that as well? You know what I'm talking about, because you're like, this is an experience that I don't know. Like, what's it like to fly? What will that be like? And there's kind of this, like, I don't know. I kind of want to jump into it, right? Like, or that deep hole that you can't see the bottom of, and you kind of want to dive in, and you're also kind of like, woo, that's giving me the heebie-jeebies. You know what I'm talking about? The mysterium tremendum. And when you encounter the holy, 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 holy God, you encounter... The mysterium tremendum that, that, that you know that you need it and you know that you need his glory and you want to taste his glory. But sometimes that glory is just too much because we can't bear the weight of it. We cannot bear the weight of it and live. And whether or not you think this way about God, you know what I'm talking about. You know what I'm talking about because of this. We want meaningful lives. And yet at the same time, we veg out in front of Netflix We want deep relationships and at the same time, too much intimacy is too much intimacy. And we just kind of, we kind of separate ourselves when things get too real in relationships. We're drawn to intimacy and yet we say no. And this reflection that these relationships that we have horizontally with one another and with the world, I would suggest to you that that is a deeper, that is simply a reflection of our experience with God. We know that we were built for and made for and need an intimate relationship with God, and yet we are terrified by it. Like the disciples are terrified that day. And so what do we do? Most of you say, well, I'm not terrified by God. Well, let me tell you why. That's because what we do to build our tabernacles is we domesticate God. We might have a loving God, who's good, but we don't have a holy, loving God. And if we have a holy God, we don't have a holy, holy, holy God. 
We we treat God like a virtual relationship where we're really bold to go to the person when they're kind of at a distance and we can kind of keep ourselves at a distance. And that is what we have done with God. We have done a Jesus is my homeboy and I can sing prom songs to him. And therefore, we think, yeah, I love being in the presence of that God. You are not in the presence of that God. You are in the well, you are in the presence of that God. And that is not the holy, holy, holy Lord God Almighty which the seraphim must cover their faces and their feet. Which Isaiah says, woe is me. Which Moses has to be tucked into a cleft of a rock and which Uzzah touches the sacramental presence of in the Ark of the Covenant and he dies. There's a story about someone's talking to a preacher and, uh, and they're shaving in the morning and say, you know, God talks to me when I shave. And the preacher goes, okay. And the preacher just had one question for him. He acted like, you know, it's very casual. God talks to me in the morning when I shave. And the preacher said, do you keep shaving? If you encountered, like really encountered, the voice of the holy, 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 holy God, you would not keep shaving. You would fall on your face and cover yourself. That's what happens anytime anyone even gets close to the presence of God in the Bible. And the only reason we think we could just keep shaving is because we've substituted the holy, holy, holy God for a domesticated version, a virtual God, a virtual relationship. And so they're terrified. And yet, we might ask, then why should we want this? Why should we want this vision? And that brings us to the third point, the hope of glory. And did you notice what happens? Peter says, let's build a tabernacle, and that doesn't happen. And right after he says, let's build a tabernacle, verse 7 says, they're enveloped by a cloud. They're enveloped by the cloud that communicates the very glory and presence and face of God. And yet they do not die. They live. Why? Why do they live? How do they live? Well, Mark tells us. Look in verse 8. In verse 8, everything drops out of the scene. Every single thing drops out of the scene, except for one thing. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them, but Jesus only. It's Mark's way of saying, focus on him. It's Mark's way of saying, Elijah and Moses can mediate the law and the covenant but they cannot bring you into the presence of God unscathed. It's Mark's way of saying that Jesus is the only one, that he shined and radiated the very presence of God. Here we have a man who radiates the very presence of God, and not only does he live, he is given a word of belovedness. This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Finally, we have a human, a human standing before God in the very face of God. And he does not die. He lives. And not only does he live, he receives benediction. This is my beloved son. 
in whom I am well pleased. And it's Mark's way of saying, only Jesus can bring you into the glorious presence of the holy God in such a way that you receive blessing and not curse. God's smile and not his frown. God's love and not his wrath. And how does he do it? The son of man must suffer and be crucified and rise on the third day. See, this is the glory of God. The glory of God who suffers for us in order to bring us into the presence of God. Who dies for our sins so that we might live in God's presence. So that we might gain what we were always meant to gain. And that is the smile of God. What every Hebrew, what every Jew longed for their whole life. To be in God's presence and to experience his smile. And this is what we are destined for. This is what we are destined for, to see him face to face and to be changed by it. We will see him as he is and we will be like him. Now we see through a glass darkly, then we shall see face to face. And in seeing face to face, we all with unveiled faces will be transformed from one degree of glory to the next. This is Jesus. And he's the only one who gets us there. You see, the law came through Moses, but grace and truth, the true God and the gracious God who brings us into his presence. Well, that comes through Jesus Christ and his death and resurrection. May you get a taste of his glory. May you see him and experience the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ and be changed. And may they transform, completely transform the way you see the world. That by faith you might see that the world is full of the glory of God. If only we will attend to it. Amen.